it's a, it's a real honor to be back. I was here a few years ago, and, and it's nice to, when you're asked to come back, it's probably better than good riddance, but uh, yeah, so that's good. I'm glad, glad I can be with you. Um, so today's set up so that we would do an hour on two different topics, and it was purposely done this way to remind us that these are two different phenomenon. So many times in the church we think of like transgender as just an extension of gay because of the title, right? LGBTQ and additional identities. And so you um, could easily mistake that the sort of the same thing. Um, so one thing just out of the gate, uh, this first hour we're going to talk about sexual identity, which is the act of labeling yourself based on your sexual preferences. So when we say we're gay or straight for that matter, or bi or bi-curious, you're using sexual identity labels. Whereas the second hour after our break, we'll talk about gender identity. And gender identity is more of your experience of yourself as a man or a woman, and whether that corresponds with your biological sex as a male or female. So that'll, we just wanna make sure we're on the same topic. So I do direct this institute if you'd like to keep tabs with what we're doing. We do original research that you'll see throughout both presentations of usually people of faith navigating either sexual identity or gender identity and faith questions. Now I will be moving. Um, I accepted a position. So this fall I'll be at Wheaton College teaching in their doctoral program. So this institute will be coming with me. It'll probably have different elements of this, but if you track with me, you'll, you'll be on the journey with me. So. Um, so, sexual identity are the labels that we use to communicate to ourselves and other people about our sexual preferences. A generation or two ago, nobody really used sexual identity labels. It's hard to imagine today a time, well many of you would probably remember this, but they just weren't used. Um, um, there were men and women. We didn't really talk, maybe heterosexual, we didn't really talk so much in terms of sexual identity labels, but today, um, most young people, this would be how they think about themselves and the way that they're known in the communities that they form. And I'm not particularly critical of that. I think the church wants to critically engage that cultural shift, but I want you to understand it. Uh, it's a change that we've witnessed in the last, you know, 40 or 50 years. Also, an identity can be public or it can be private, right? So public is how I either want you to know me or how you perceive me and label me. And private is how I think about myself when I look at myself in the mirror at night. And that's especially important with Christians because in the studies that we've done, a number of Christians would say, um, would, you know, would allow you to think that they're straight because of their public identity, that's the default, but inside when they go to bed at night and they look at themselves in the mirror, they know that they're navigating same-sex sexuality and that can lead to a kind of shame, right? Like I, uh, people know me on these terms, but if they really knew me, would there be the same level of acceptance of me? And so that's a variable that we have to look at throughout our time as well. I often make a three-tier distinction between attraction, orientation, and identity. And if I were to illustrate it visually, you would see it sort of like this, that, that uh, maybe six to eight percent of the population would say I'm attracted to the same sex, and a smaller percentage, maybe about four percent, would say this is my orientation. So what's the difference between attraction and orientation? It's the strength of the attraction, how enduring it is, um, so it's a strong attraction, it's persistent over time, enduring, you would say that that's my orientation. And then most of those folks would say this is also my identity. I identify as a gay person, 
um, because the majority of people for whom that's their story, that's something that they um, have come to terms with. They celebrate that as the broader culture has shifted to embracing that as a, as a way of uh, experiencing yourself. Now, you will see that um, in the middle of that, I said, also called gay under orientation. So why would I do that? This is a reflection on the changing vernacular. So a generation or two ago, if someone said that they were gay, it would have had a different connotation than it has today. It would have meant something closer to being promiscuous. It would have, it would have suggested a lifestyle. And why I point out in the middle that orientation can also be referred to as gay is that if you asked a teenager who's 15 about their orientation and they said I'm gay they would be answering your question but they wouldn't be telling you anything other than that's the attractions I have towards the same sex because the vernacular has changed there's no 15 year old you're going to ask tell me your sexual orientation none of them would say I have a homosexual orientation the word has fallen out of the vernacular so the challenge in the church is that we have multiple generations all together. So you have generations for whom gay signals something of your values, right? Alongside teenagers for whom gay signals, I'm just answering your question, I'm describing my orientation. And we all coexist in the same body, often speaking past each other with the same word. So it's good to know when you're talking to somebody um, to not make assumptions about what the word means for them because it could carry different meanings for different people. Also, um, when someone says that they're gay, because it can just mean these are my attractions, um, there's a whole different way in which a person could sort of think about their attractions as a Christian. So this was brought to my attention a few years ago by a friend of mine. Uh, her name's Karen, and she's gay, and she is also deaf. And so she shares this quote that I'd like you to hear. She says, she took me out of the gay debate into the deaf debate to make this point. In the world of hearing loss, you have those who are deaf and those who are deaf. These two groups are well distinguished and identified. Anyone who uses capital D deaf knows she's referring to something more than small d deaf. People who are deaf, capital D, comprise a culture. They do not see themselves as having a disability. They see themselves as a people group with their own language and culture. On the other hand, those who are deaf, lowercase d, do not see hearing loss as identity. They see it as a disability or a medical condition. That group is more likely to be oral. They often undergo intensive training to lip read. They use their voice to communicate instead of sign language. Some might also seek a cochlear implant. So when they say, I am deaf, they are not saying, I am deaf with a capital D. And sometimes there's contention between those groups because of how each group understands the experience of hearing loss. For example, those who are deaf with a capital D see cochlear implants as, a, as threatening and an extreme offense. They don't think there's anything that needs to be fixed. They celebrate their identity as deaf. So if you bring us back to the discussion of sexual identity, in a sense, there are those for whom the majority, for whom being gay is a... <coughs> Is, means to comprise a culture we should be celebrating. But there's also a subset of people for whom being gay, but they might not use the word disability and they wouldn't think medical condition, but they might say maybe it's like when the Apostle Paul talks about a thorn in his flesh. He's not celebrating it like a culture of thorn-pricked Christians. He's saying 
no, there's something here that I've asked God, would you remove this from me? Now, in that case, God says to him, my grace is sufficient for you, but it's going to be an enduring reality. And so sometimes people who are gay position themselves in relation to their same-sex sexuality in a sense like a lower G gay. It's, it's, um, it's more the way Paul talks about the thorn in the flesh, whereas the majority of people around them are treating gay with a capital G, right? They're celebrating it as a culture. And you've seen our culture rapidly change in that direction and embrace that. And churches are struggling with how to think about it theologically and things like that. So, and pastorally shepherding people. So nobody outside of this room is using uppercase, lowercase g. So don't, don't run out of here starting to do that and think that that's doing something. That, doesn't, that was just for our purposes to see. Um, it's really important how people make meaning of their attractions. So I call these attributions, right? How you make meaning out of something. How you make, we are sense-making people. And I think even if, you know, I'm conservative about this as an evangelical, and so... Um, but I can have empathy and compassion for people for whom being gay is something that they've come to celebrate. I disagree with them, but I can understand how compelling that would be. And we want to understand that as a body when we're trying to say, um, how else could people think about it, right? So uh, we'll need to kind of walk through um, how to think about that maybe as ministry leaders and as parents around these issues. So a lot of what I study is identity development. So people don't wake up one day and say that they're gay. They actually go through a developmental process that has been studied in mainstream LGBTQ studies by mainstream psychologists. And here I am, I'm an evangelical Christian who's in that space, and I do the same research, but I use Christian samples, whereas they would use like um, community samples or people at a, at a university, something like that. We all, we all use university students, so, okay. So, anyway, um, so I do the same thing, but with Christians. And so people have this time of, like, a dilemma. I don't experience what everybody else is experiencing, which is attraction to the opposite sex, and it's a dilemma for me. What does this mean for me? Then they go through a time of development, which is characterized by milestones, and they eventually reach a time where they synthesize who they are, whether it's uppercase G, lowercase G, whatever they think about themselves, they get to an end point where they say, this journey has reached its conclusion. This is who I am and how I will be known. So here's some of the milestones that are very common in the formation of, of an identity among adults who are gay or lesbian who look back on their life and say, these were some key events in my life that brought me to where I am today. So in ministry, it can be really helpful to understand those milestones. Um, what people are facing the decisions that they're facing, the questions that are raised as they explore this part of their lives. So this is from mainstream researchers. They would say it has typically been a three to four year process for females, five to six years for males. They don't offer an explanation for why it's a little bit longer there. And that's on average. They would say for some people, it's a matter of a few months. Maybe you know people like that. They knew within two or three months, this is their story and that's where they landed. Other people, it can be 15 or more years. Okay, so this is mainstream research. I'll show you what we've seen with Christians. But So the language that I often use, and I would invite you to borrow this in ministry and, and for maybe if you're a family member here, to think about the people that you shepherd, the people you minister to, they're hiking difficult terrain. 
And so I sort of position them like this. If they're hiking difficult terrain, it's made difficult because the thing that they're navigating is the thing that churches are debating. It's the thing that culture, it's become central to our cultural discourse. So it's weightier for them. Um, for some churches, it questions of salvation come up. There's all kinds of areas that just um, make this a very challenging terrain to navigate. How people talk about gay people uh, in the church, how family members talk about uh, this can make this really difficult. So here I'm just locating the milestones that we've seen in research that we've done. So we've been doing research for over 10 years using um, samples typically from Christian colleges around the country and publishing them either in peer-reviewed journals or in book form. And the last book we just published, these are the findings from that study. So what you see is on average, you're seeing first kind of awareness of my same-sex sexuality shortly after puberty, average age of 13. So that's just as a straight person would first be aware that they're crushing on the opposite sex would be about the same time, right? So there's variations there, but that's on average. And then you had, what does this mean about me? What do these attractions mean for me about the same age? Whether this is confusing or not, you saw for 95% of our students, yeah, this is confusing. Other people are talking about this cute you know, guy over here, and here's this woman saying, um, I was really attracted to my best friend, and that was confusing to me because I wasn't having the experience all my other girlfriends were having. Right? Then it was disclosure. Who can I share this experience with? We call it, you know, in the mainstream, it's coming out and it's celebrated. But disclosure is important. It's kind of asking the question, who can I trust with my story? That's a very important question. So don't so much in ministry react to how maybe the mainstream frames things, and then you feel like you've got to oppose it because you're a Christian. Think about what drives the way things get celebrated and why that would matter to you in a ministry setting, right? So really, let's, let's move away from sort of coming out day celebration towards sharing the reality of your story with someone you can trust. Because you realize that that's important to anybody in this space. So we call it disclosure, okay? Now, one thing I draw your attention to, on average, first awareness for this Christian sample was 13. On average, first disclosure was 17. If this isn't your story, I just want you to imagine what that would be like to go four years, on average, four years of knowing this is part of your experience and not sharing it with anybody for the next four years. That is a formula for shame. I'm not even getting into the theology at this point, right? I've already shared you know, a little bit about my, my take, but I'm not really here to unpack that so much. But to understand how weighty that would be, right? And why telling somebody would be important. And so sometimes, okay, so if someone were to disclose to you, honor that, please. I have been in so many interviews with people who said, yeah, I did tell someone in my church, and they said, don't tell anybody. Keep it, no, it's not, you know. And so they kept it, I remember one person said, I kept it secret for 40 years because of that conversation. Can you imagine? Now, on the other hand, you're saying, well, in my church, everybody's coming out. It's coming out, okay, so it's a different experience in some people's, people's uh, church communities. But in, for some people, coming out can be a much stronger declaration in part because of what they feel like they're up against. Um, in some ways, it's almost an act of resilience. They may come out stronger than they even feel because they're trying to sort of navigate this difficult terrain. 
So sometimes, sometimes in ministry and in families, we overreact to the coming out, even because of the strength of the coming out. I've had people not this is just being, you know, you know, they come home from college and their and, and their first you know Thanksgiving they plant a, a pride flag on top of the turkey and say, Mom and Dad, this is who I am, and so everybody kind of reacts this. But imagine developmentally, they've been navigating that space for a long time, so they may be coming out in a sense stronger than they otherwise mean to because that's the only way they feel like they can make this work, okay? And then it usually spirals from there in the sense that we react to that and it sort of just kind of goes from there. So we wanna to begin to think about how to um, respond when someone shares that this is their story. You know, you, you don't wanna respond in ways that escalate everything. I, I've worked with many parents who say, you know, well, how can you be gay? I mean, you dated, so-and-so, when you were a sophomore, and you went to prom, I remember, we went to, I, I saw you go to prom. And so many times when people are navigating this space, they will date heterosexually to see if they you know, have the potential. Maybe I can figure this out in a way that my church would support. Or sometimes they do it to, so that you won't ask questions. And then years later, they tell you, here's what was really going on all that time, and then the response is that the behavior, the engagement is now under scrutiny like they were deceiving them. I wasn't deceiving you, I was trying not to have this conversation and now we're having it. So um, I think we can begin to at least kind of see it through their eyes, even if you know, theologically we're in a different place than maybe that loved one or the person you're ministering to. The key to ministry is to try to see the experience through the eyes of the other so that you can shepherd them better. We don't have a lot of good examples of that in the church. Most of our examples on this topic, we do it well on other things, but on this topic, most of our examples are framed in culture war terms. Um, you know, and ch sometimes churches will, you'll, you'll hear in the narthex or even from the pulpit that, you know, gays are ruining this culture or gays are ruining marriage, right? And so it tells a 16-year-old it's us versus them, and I must be a them by virtue of my same-sex attractions. What a difficult position to be in. Or some churches don't talk about sexuality at all. We've got a lot of interviews with people like that. They'll say, well, we never talked about it. But how many of you know that not talking about something still sends a message, right? There's still a message in not talking about something. So there's those, there's those challenges. So I wanted you to see the gap between awareness of attraction and telling somebody. So if you're in ministry and someone tells you, honor that because that was a big risk. And in disclosure, the research is pretty clear. People tell their peers first, and then, um, then they would tell a sibling, and then they would tell their mother, and then they would tell their father, on average. Now, if you're in the room and you said, well, my loved one told me first and you're a father, God bless you. I'm just saying, on average, that's what we see in the research. And if you throw in a study, which we've done, where youth ministers fall, it's usually peer group, youth minister, sibling, mother, father. Okay. So if you're being told this in a ministry position or... In, as a parent or a sibling or a loved one, please honor the story, regardless of sort of where you are theologically on this, it's a story they're sharing about this journey and they've invited you in, and that's an honor. Um, and then you see at about age 17, attributions on average about being gay, that that's what these attractions mean, like figuring that, that this is what this has been about. Um, and, and a more solid sense of that. And then you see um, private identity, this is how I think about myself when I look at myself in the mirror. Almost three quarters of the people that we surveyed with sexual attractions to the same sex 
said that's how they think about themselves when they look at themselves in the mirror. They're using the common vernacular, but only 40% of them were known to others that way, were publicly, at least publicly identified as gay. Um, okay, and then um, I often use this image to illustrate the challenges people face in the church, that they're navigating what feels like a bit of a storm cloud between their sexual identity and their religious identity. So their same-sex sexuality and their Christian faith. And so for some people, that's not a storm cloud. But for many people we interview, that was a cloud. That was a challenge. They didn't know how these things could be reconciled. And so then I throw into our illustration, here's the person who's asking the question, who am I in light of my same-sex sexuality? And who am I in light of my faith that I've been raised in? Right? And so you have from the LGBTQ community, essentially the response there is, we can tell you who you are. You're one of us. We have resources to answer the questions you have about identity and community. You're one of us. And the gay community is often referred to as the family by members of the gay community. And I would have to admit that in the studies we've done, very few Christians who grew up in the church would look back at their church they were raised in and refer to it in the same terms. Very few of them called their local church their family in the same way that they have sometimes come to see the LGBTQ community. So I'm saying that not, I'm saying that to, look, I'm an elder in my own church. I'm saying that for all of us to say, how do we become family to the very people who look back on their experience in our home and say, I didn't feel like family there? That's sort of the ministry question for all of us. Um, okay. Also, it provides a model for how to grow up with your same-sex attractions, what, where you'll be in 10 years, what will that look like? And a lot of times when people are in the church, they can't see examples of themselves 10 years down the road. They look around and they say, well, what will life be like for me if I'm part of this community? And so we have very few examples of people in leadership roles who have navigated these places. So I'm, and I'm thinking, again, more from a conservative standpoint, someone who's living out a life in keeping with the teachings of the church but is allowed to be in a leadership role. Um, often people are afraid to share that this is their story because they'll be told they can't then be in those leadership roles, even if they're chaste. And so that creates quite a challenge then for a 16-year-old who says there's not a place for me in the body of Christ. And I was asking someone who does ministry with college age about, uh, about how do young people envision themselves 10 years down the road. And she said, I'll tell you exactly what they do. They watch YouTube channels. They watch videos of gay people who are doing life. They're not Christians, and so they have to sort of figure that part out, but they're, they're in a relationship, and they go to work, and they work all day, and they come home, and they make dinner for one another, and they're funny, and they're engaging, but they can imagine themselves in 10 years, like, okay, I could hold down a job. I could do this. I could figure this out. I'll have to figure out the faith part, you know, and I, I know that my church would say not to be in a relationship, so I've got to figure that part out, but they don't have examples and so here they are, YouTube channels, okay? So just for what it's worth. I shared um, in one of my earlier books um, that there's something like um, a gay script for making sense of your same-sex sexuality. And so I'm not particularly critical of this. I just think 
um, it's helpful to understand that a script is a cultural expectation for how we make, um, how we relate to one another. So if I greet you, there's a cultural expectation for greeting, right? If I, if, I, if I ride an elevator, there's a cultural expectation that we walk into the elevator, we don't talk to each other, we select our floor, the doors close, and that's it. That's, that's how you ride an elevator culturally. Okay. I mean, try taking a selfie with everybody next time you're in an elevator. You'll be outside the cultural script. So we have cultural expectations for a lot of things. We have cultural expectations for when single people should get married. Now, you know, obviously I'm saying should. We have cultural expectations for when married people should start to have a family. These are expectations that are sort of unspoken. And so what I suggested was there's something like this, that, that same-sex attractions signal a naturally occurring distinction among types of people. There are gay, straight, and bi types of people. These attractions signal who you really are as a person. There's a, they're at the core of who you are. And so behavior is no longer viewed as something that's morally impermissible. Behavior is an extension or an expression of personhood. Um, and now you can talk about the self-actualization of your sexual identity. Now, I don't know if that's, you know, I, I think that's a fair script. And it, it's sort of a, I see it as a very emotionally compelling script. So if, if I'm 14 or 15 or 16, and that's just sort of the, the, the culture within which we live, I think if this is not your story, you would read that script and say, that's a pretty compelling script. Imagine what that would be like if that was your story. And so you go back to this image and you see, okay, that makes sense to me. On the side that says the gay community, when they say we have resources to answer questions you have about identity and community, that's what they're saying. There's a script, there's a way of thinking and, and experiencing your sexuality. You're part of a culture we could be celebrating, that capital G. And the majority of people who are navigating this space land right there. A subset of them don't land there. And that was the quote I gave you for the woman who said, there's a distinction of being capital D deaf and lowercase d deaf, right? There are some people for whom that's not the way they experience it. Now, I inserted here the local church. <laughs> and I, this is hard for me because I am an elder in the church and I love the church. But most of our communities either remain silent or we send the message of no. We don't cast a positive vision for somebody who's navigating this space to live into. And we hope that they'll, we often treat them as not even part of our faith communities, that they're out there somewhere. It is us versus them. Um, and I'm, what I wanna help you understand is the gay community offers a compelling yes. The church is either silent or sends a no. And it's better to come to terms with that and say, okay, what would ministry look like if we could cast a better vision for how to thrive in our body of Christ as someone navigating this terrain? Is that possible for us to do? From one of the studies we did, someone said, it was really hard for me to tell other people with the same religious uh, beliefs, these were Christians, about my experiences with same-sex attraction because I already knew what they believed about it, that it's immoral and I thought that they'd think I'd chosen to be attracted to the same sex. What's interesting about this quote is this is a conservative person who was trying to live out their faith as a Christian with their same-sex sexuality, and she didn't even want to tell people about the reality of her attractions because she knew in her heart that that person she would tell would think that she chose this. Many people in ministry 
work from the assumption that having same-sex attractions is willful disobedience. So their pastoral care um, comes out of that assumption. If it's willful disobedience to have attractions, then making the right choices daily is how you don't have those attractions anymore. Okay, I don't even know what to say about it. that. that, that um, I have not met somebody who has chosen to experience same-sex attractions. People find themselves attracted to the same sex as they go through puberty, just as people find themselves attracted to the opposite sex. So the framing this as willful disobedience is not helping you understand their experience to do ministry, and then the solutions aren't, they're lining up with your assumptions, but because your assumptions were wrong, your solutions can be wrong. It's more likely, and I did a seven-year longitudinal study of people trying to change their orientations to involvement in Christian ministries, and nobody liked this study. Let me, let me put it this way. This was, this was great. Um, there were two kind of groups in the culture wars that, that critiqued this study. One I would call cynical pessimists. This is a group of people who said nobody has ever experienced any change through involvement in these types of ministries. And they didn't like our study because we had data that suggested that on a continuum, there were some meaningful shifts along the continuum for some people. On the other side are a group of people I would call arrogant optimists. An arrogant optimist would suggest that anybody who tries hard enough or has enough faith can experience a 180 degree change from gay to straight. And our data didn't show that either. And so they didn't like our study. As I said, nobody liked this study. So I got some copies of the book if you ever want to read it. It's like, it's like a 400 page book you could take down to the beach. But um, so it's nothing but research. It's, a, it's great. Um, I'm not even sure my mom read that one. Okay, so, okay, so, um, but to me, this was, I did, this was like the first 10 years of my career. I did this study over a seven year longitudinal study wrapped it all up, and it was a real like pastoral shepherding question. How do you shepherd people where the majority of them are gonna have more enduring same-sex attractions? What's that gonna look like? Um, because the common answer in the churches I was raised in is that you help people become straight. And you equated being straight with sanctification. Now, how many of you know that being heterosexual is not a guarantor of you being sanctified. Like, there are, there are, yeah, thank you. There are, there are plenty of people who are straight who are no more Christ-like by virtue of being straight. In fact, many of them do great damage to the church's witness to the broader culture. Far more damage probably than the percentage of gay people that are in the community. So, uh, when you look at it this way, um, I think you want to separate out heterosexuality and Christ-likeness. You want to minister with, to people to deepen their walk with Christ. That's the direction I would go. I didn't even say the rest of these quotes. Let me come back to that. That was a, that was a, that'll preach. Okay. The church I went to when I started changing built up a lot of emotions, led me to believe there was a simple change, and created a lot of resentment and bitterness towards the church. That's that, that's that arrogant optimism, right? And so this person, I think, did report changes in how they, you know, their behavior. They refrained from sexual behavior. Changes maybe in how they thought about themselves, but their, their underlying attractions didn't change. So they had to kind of live with that. And they were, I've met many people who are angry at the church for sending the message that that's an easy thing to have as an outcome. It's an expectation from the church. This person said, when I was a child, 
my church was very legalistic. I didn't see room for the grace of God to work. I was afraid to confess same-sex attraction to anyone. I kept it hidden for 40 years from all but one person. I could have found help at a younger age if that had been openly offered. Okay, now I've been talking about this as though developmentally this all happens between like 13 and 19, but that's the danger of studying college students is that anything resolves by the time you, you do your survey. This is a study of people in the community. We compared Christians who integrated their same-sex sexuality into a public gay identity that they celebrated. And we compared them to a group of Christians who did not identify with the gay community despite their enduring same-sex attractions. And the group that celebrated being gay as an expression of diversity, um, they figured all this out. They reached a place where this was all congruent for them. Um, a place of authenticity. The average age for them figuring all this out was 26. For the group that said no to the mainstream gay script, the average age for them figuring all this out was 34. So I have parents come to my office all the time with a loved one. They'll maybe swing by and say, our 16-year-old told us that she's gay this week and um, I'd like you to you know, talk with her and then they drive off. You know, so I say, you know, mom, park the car, you know, come on in. Um, and I try to help parents recognize developmentally, and I work with pastors and youth ministers, same message, try to take the long view. Your loved one has been navigating this terrain at 15 for a couple of years. They will be navigating this terrain for many years to come. So now as a parent or someone in ministry, then the question really is, what do they need from you in the course of the next year? And maybe we'll take chunks of time over the next several months that you're ministering to them. I'm not sure whether I should go with family or ministry here, but whatever role you have, you can begin to sort of chunk times together and say, okay, my daughter just shared this story with me. I didn't know this for the last two years and she shared this with me. I've had parents say, I don't even know our daughter anymore. She came out two years ago, we don't even know who she is anymore. And you know they'll describe her to me, and I'll I'll, I'll grab a sheet of paper, and uh, I'll put a line down the middle, and I'll ask them to describe their daughter, and they'll say, well she's she's really really sharp. She's one of the smartest people in her class, and she's got a great sense of humor, and she's always loved Jesus, and she's athletic, and she loves sports, and she loves to do art. And I write all these things down, and I'll put a line down the middle, and I'll put on the other side same-sex sexuality or same-sex attractions, right? And what I'm saying to the parent is, and what I'm remembering from a ministry perspective is, the fact that you know this about your loved one doesn't mean that these things don't exist. In fact, you could argue that you know more about her now by virtue of this difficult conversation than you knew before. To reframe it as an invitation to know her better. And the research suggests that the quality of relationship between the parents and a loved one teenager navigating this space is the best predictor of that loved one's well-being over time, the quality of that relationship. Now that doesn't mean that you have to, like let's say that she lands in one place theologically and you land in a different place theologically. For many times when I work with families, the parent is more conservative, the teenager is less so, let me put it that way. You don't have to land where she lands to be that resource to her that predicts her well-being over time. You do have to avoid things that put her at risk, that are more rejecting behaviors, that lead to homelessness and things like that. 
Um, but your love of that loved one is the best predictor in the quality of that relationship over time. And we've done studies, we're doing a study right now, a friend of mine, I don't know if we're, I mean, we're friends, but he dropped a data set on me of 200 qualitative interviews. And if you've done research, this is not what you want to have land in your lap. But um, so 200 Christian parents whose kids came out to them as gay or lesbian or transgender. And we've been analyzing this data for the last several years. And we found the same thing to be true. Parents, you know, often retain their own theology, their own beliefs about what's morally permissible and what's morally impermissible, but they see that their relationship gets worse and then it gets better. It goes through a time that's difficult and it gets better. It leads to greater authenticity, greater uh, quality of relationship, better communication. But you're saying, you, you mentioned it gets worse. It gets worse often, for not all, but some, it gets worse. It's a bumpy road, but it gets better. Some parents questioned the beliefs that they held before about sexual ethics. Some changed their beliefs to be more in line with their loved one's views of this, but many retained their beliefs. That did not predict the relationship. People can be in different places um, and still uh, love one another, and I know that that can still be heartbreaking for parents and that can be difficult for the loved one. It can be difficult for everyone. I'm not trying to skate past that. Um, but I want to give us options for how we relate and minister to one another. So I come back to this image, and obviously the conversation has gotten more complex and more nuanced. There are more voices within the gay community who are saying this is not one side versus the other. There are ways to rethink scripture. There are, and many of um, your teens and uh, emerging adults would be familiar with these voices. So a Matthew Vines, a Justin Lee. Um, the other book by James Bronson's more theologically, I would say, sophisticated. He, uh, he's a theologian. Um, but there's different voices saying um, there's ways to reconcile this in um, what's often called an affirming way. Okay, So instead of it being just a hard choice between the LGBTQ community and the local church community, now there's another you know, layer of complexity here with more people saying there's other ways to do this, right? And I think many young people are still looking at their churches saying, what are you going to, what are you, what are you offering us in terms of identity and community? Because what you get, I think, from some of the voices over here, from the mainstream LGBTQ community, you get a yes. You get a yes to identity, a yes to community, a yes to intimacy, a yes to status. And I think what many people would say in the interviews we've done is that they experience pretty much a no. A no to identity, a no to community, a no to intimacy, a no to status. And I think the ministry challenge moving forward for the church, the church that is theologically um, more conservative, as, again, as I am, uh, I think the challenge for us is how do you develop a yes that eclipses both the yes that is readily available from the mainstream LGBTQ community and the no that is reported by most people who grow up in the church, how do you give a, a yes that is in any way compelling to people? That's the challenge for us as a church. So I give you some qualities that I think would be a part of this yes. It's not exhaustive. It's something for us to talk about. I would say a yes uh, has to be characterized by humility. I've been in this research area for 20 years. I'm impressed by how many other people who haven't been, have very clear answers about complex issues like causation, 
or change and research in that area. What causes a sexual orientation? Okay, my answer is we don't know. I'm impressed with the number of people who are very certain that they know. Um, I would love to see the church have a little more humility about things that we don't know. Okay, so for example, in the 1990s, there was a the biological argument was forcefully advanced, and you saw cover of Newsweek and Time and a lot of research being done on twin studies and prenatal hormonal exposure and areas of the X chromosome and things like that. So there are dozens and dozens of studies like that. There is no real answer today that this is the causal pathway. Um, there's varying degrees of quality among those studies. We could talk about any of those studies if you'd like to. But the bottom line is there is no one explanation that accounts for sexual orientation for people for whom, um, who are gay. For what it's worth, we also don't know how sexual orientation develops for heterosexual people. So we, did, we don't really understand the causal mechanisms here. Um, but the church often reacted to the biological argument with a knee-jerk reaction that it can't be that. It can't be nature. It has to be nurture. And we settled on two answers. It's either uh, parent-child relationships that cause this, or it's childhood sexual abuse. Those are probably the two most favored environmental theories apart from just saying willful disobedience. So I took willful disobedience off the table. Okay, you heard me do that. But these other two are alive and well. And this makes it really hard for Christian parents because they, their loved one comes out and they want that they do two things simultaneously. They look for help and resources and they try to maintain contact with their loved one. Those are the two prominent challenges that parents face when a loved one comes out. Well, as they search for Christian resources, the Christian resources often tell them that they caused the homosexuality. Now, friends, if I'm going to be tough on twin studies and prenatal hormonal studies and animal modeling and all these different studies, I can't give a pass to the studies that have been done on parent-child relationships. A lot of them are from the 1960s and 70s. They're from a particular theoretical orientation where they just asked the people who used that orientation to look at their clinical files and reflect on the stories of the people that they were serving. I mean, these are not well-designed studies. And I'm trying to be fair and even-handed. And a lot of heterosexual people do not have great relationships with their parents. I mean, it's not like, a, I don't think there's good evidence to say that the failure to identify with the same-sex parent becomes sexualized in adolescence and it is a explanation for sexual orientation. The data just isn't in. Now, I would agree with you if you were to push back and say, well, you can't even do that study anymore. I get that. That's not even going to get funded. But the studies that we do have are not as compelling as many people in the church seem to think. And it puts Christian parents in an untenable position. They feel such shame. It's been said, not by me originally, someone else said it, but when a loved one comes out of the closet, the Christian parents go into the closet. There is an evangelical subcultural shame that leads people to not turn to the body of Christ for support, and they feel like they've got to hide the story from everyone else because they'll, they'll be blamed for it. And many Christian parents I've met with would take a bullet for their loved one, and so they're willing to take the blame because it also gives them a meaning-making structure. Okay, this makes sense. We allowed so-and-so to be involved in this sport, or we didn't let them do this, and that's what it did. Okay, we don't have any idea, okay? We have no reason to believe that their involvement in this would have caused this enduring same-sex sexuality. The other is sexual abuse. And there is a higher 
rate of sexual abuse reported by adults in their childhood, adults who are gay, than there is compared to straight people. But I would not go there for a causal pathway. The majority, vast majority of people who experience sexual abuse as a child develop a heterosexual orientation. Does it complicate your sexuality? Absolutely. But evangelicals have made two mistakes. We've landed on these as causal theories that we were certain about, and then we said that if you resolve those issues, you'll become straight. So one was a mistake of causation with certainty, and one was a promise of an outcome we couldn't deliver on. Now, let me back up a second. If you know somebody whose testimony is that they did experience change in this way, I'm not challenging the veracity of that testimony. I know people who would say the same thing. But the reason why you do research is to let people know how likely that story is to be for the next person. And what my experience has been is it's not that likely. So the more we hold out the expectation that many, most, will not meet, we set up people to have expectations that get dashed. And that leads to quite a bit of pushback against the church and against God. Okay, so some, I did, that was my first point. Humility. Okay, great. Wow. Okay, so humility about what we know and what we don't know. Okay? Compassion. toward Much of this talk is centered on seeing this through the eyes of the person navigating this terrain. Could we have a little compassion for what this must be like from a developmental standpoint? Um, we would have to um, uh, oh, value singleness. Okay, we're not good at this either. Okay, so, um, and I'm, an, I'm, an, I'm not trying to bash the church. I'm, I am in the church. We're all in the church. Okay. Many churches say they value singleness, but they don't program in a way that values singleness. Most of their programming for singles is to get single people married. And so it sends the message that there's a two-tier sort of part of the church. The upper tier is to be married and have a family. And then when you fall off from that by not marrying, you're in another tier. And the message that you send to people navigating same-sex sexuality is that they have to become straight to be able to marry to be in the top tier. In a sense, based on the church's teaching today, you're saying that this person navigating same-sex sexuality is a subset of single people in the body of Christ. So how you minister to single people really matters, that you value singleness for its own sake. Because that would cast a vision for a life where someone could actually flourish and someone navigating this space wouldn't think of that as an impossible future. But as a future, and you'll have many, many more heterosexual singles than you will ever have singles who are same-sex attracted just by base rates. So you'd have to value singleness in the way that we don't quite do right now. We would need to offer realistic biblical hope, which goes back to the idea that most people are not gonna experience dramatic shifts in this area. So let's focus less on heterosexuality and let's focus a little bit more on discipleship and Christ-likeness. Um, also, when people are living that out, it's gonna be a kind of costly obedience. Um, the things that I, this is not my personal story, the things that I struggle with in my church I could almost get a pass on because there is a kind of quality of how we respond to other things people struggle with. This is a group of people who do not get a pass. Every day, they say no to something to say yes to something else. And that can create a certain kind of maturity over time for people who live that kind of costly obedience. But I would argue that costly obedience should cost everybody. 
Like I can't say to my friend, um, uh, a couple of friends of mine who are living this out, hey, good luck with that while I go home to my wife and my children. If it costs them, it has to cost me. So what sacrifices do I make to be family to them, to meet their emotional needs? Look, people can survive without genital sexual activity, but people cannot survive without intimacy. You have to help meet needs for intimacy. And I can't go home to the sanctioned intimacy I get and say good luck to you with the intimacy you're trying to achieve and there's no structure to support that. I've gotta be a part of that solution. It has to cost me. Um, so kinship and family, extending family to all. And then latitude and language. Okay, Whew. okay. So I am not a fan of being critical of how people describe themselves in this space. Many people do not like it when people navigating these issues describe themselves as gay. How do I put this? I'm not saying language doesn't matter, but it's not really ministry to wordsmith how someone describes their same-sex attraction. If you'd use an iceberg analogy, this is an above-the-surface type of a topic. Like, them saying that they're gay is above the surface that got your attention. But an iceberg... 90% of that iceberg is underneath the surface. You want to minister, minister to 90% of what's going on underneath the surface. Don't get distracted by people's preferred way of describing themselves. Let them, I would say, let them use the language that is the common vernacular and how they understand these things and minister to the fundamental questions underneath the surface around identity and community and what does God think about this and discipleship. And those questions are the, the driving questions for ministry. And then lastly, um, we need compelling storylines of people who are living this out in a way that a young person could look to and say, okay, there's a place for me in the body of Christ. And that was really the point I was making earlier, um, that we don't have a lot of examples of that. So a 14-year-old, 16-year-old isn't going to look in their local church and think, that's what this will be like for me in 10 years. So that comes back to that point. Okay, so I've kind of outlined, I think, the dilemma. I hope I've given you some resources, a primer, on how to think about this. But I have about five or six, seven minutes where we can take a few questions um, if it would be helpful to kind of unpack or go back and kind of go through some of that material again. Yes? So what are the chances if, if, if someone comes to you and they tell you your story, you know, they, they invite you in, um, and they, they come out to you and they, they have a bad experience. How do you repair that? Like, how do you, uh, maybe as a second person, or, you know, how, what are the chances of repairing that? Or is that pretty much, that was, that was their shot? That's a great question because it's all, I, I take it for granted that they've had bad experiences with Christians. So I walk into a relationship with that because all the data would suggest that that's been true, okay? Yeah. And all my anecdotal clinical work would suggest that's been true. So I've got behind the eight ball right now. I've got to figure out a way to do ministry to someone who's been damaged by people who bear the name that I bear, Christian. So I work harder. I, um, you know, I do things like, I, I try to practice the gift of hospitality by letting them, you know, however they want to talk about this at their own pace, I thank them for sharing their story with me. I've had people say, you're the first Christian who actually took the time to ask me questions, to sit with me, 
who didn't just say I'm going to hell out of hand. I'm sorry that you had those experiences. As an elder, sometimes I've said on behalf of the church, I'm sorry that some of the earliest experiences you had were so difficult for you. I might do something like that. Or as someone in ministry, I just want you to know, I'm sorry that you had those experiences. I'm very grateful that you would entrust me to it in light of the stories that you've just told me. So thank you. That's a gift to me. Now, the next time we meet, I might not even bring up the fact that they're gay. Like if I'm working with a teenager in youth ministry, I'm going to ask them about their soccer game. I'm going to ask them about their volleyball. I'm going to ask them about the chess match they just did. I'm going to show them that I see them um, for the fully orbed person they are, the holistic model of the person they are. And I'm not in a relationship with you just to be in a relationship with you on this topic. The third meeting I'm going to have, I'm going to come back to this and remind them that I haven't forgotten. I know this is important to you. But my time with you is not a time where my, I'm overseeing this issue as though you were this issue. You're a person navigating a whole lot of stuff. School, family, sports, chess, <laughs> tournaments. Okay, so, And I want to walk with you through the whole thing. And um, at the end of the day, I want to invite the person, if they're open to it, into a discipling relationship where they can grow in Christ the way I would anybody else in my life. What I think a lot of people in ministry, where the mistake that they make is they want the person to get this right so that they can disciple them. I would flip that one. I would offer opportunities to disciple somebody who's interested in growing in Christ because at the end of the day, what you're inviting them to do down the road is to entrust their sexuality to God, to a father whose plan for them is better than their own. But think about this. Back, let's back off of this topic for a second. Think about anything in life that you struggle with. At any point, finances, your marriage, raising your children, the teenage years, what to do for a career. At some point, the Christian dared to trust that there's a good and loving father whose plan for their finances, for their career, for their children was better than their own plan. How did any of us dare to trust in that kind of a father? It was usually through relationships with people who bore his name, Christian. And we grew in this relationship and maturity, and we dared trust. What you're doing with someone in this space is you're inviting them to a place where they would trust that that father cares about them in this part of their life in a way that they could trust God with that as well. You can't get that from disputing this and this and this. That comes from a relationship with Christ where the Holy Spirit speaks to them and, and, and invites them to trust him with that part of their life. That's, that's the hard work of ministry. There are no shortcuts, and it's interpersonally mediated. Most people's experience in the church is made, made or broken by the relationships with the people who bear the name of Christ, Christians. And unfortunately, they've often been bad relationships. Yeah, thanks. I'm sorry. My next answer will be much shorter. So. <laughs> Any other? Any, we can probably do one more. Yeah, go ahead.
Okay, there's a couple couple things I think I'm not. There's no easy answers here, so there's a couple things I would point to. In the most recent work we've done with Christian college students who are gay at Christian colleges all over the U.S., um, what we were impressed by is that they were authentic followers of Christ who took their faith seriously, and they were navigating same-sex sexuality, and they took that seriously. And what they wanted was a place where they could take both of those things seriously and how they would relate the two seriously. So when someone is in family or in ministry or college and they're coming there, I would not assume that they're not a believer. Now, for a Christian who's conservative, you might say that they're in doctrinal error, and they might say the same thing of you. So, but uh, as a conservative, as an elder in my own church, the way that we would understand that in shepherding people is that they may very well have an authentic life in Christ. Many people have an authentic life in Christ and are in doctrinal error. I'm sure I've got a few in my own, I'm sure I'm wrong about several things, but these are not light matters, they're weighty matters for the body of Christ. And so we take them very seriously and we shepherd them. And we're probably gonna be talking um, down the road about our church's take on this we're not hiding it. We want to talk with them about what we believe, but I'm going to listen first how their faith journey has been and how they landed where they landed and how they see this as an authentic expression of their faith and their sexuality, how they come together. But I also want them to understand, whether it's a membership class or whatever it's going to be, that this is how our church has understood this. And I'm going to try to say it in as winsome a way as I can because many Christians have said this in ways that are very off-putting. Richard Mao used to say, we need Christians with convicted civility. We have too many Christians who are strong on convictions, but you don't want them to represent you to the rest of the culture, mm -hmm. because they're just not good representatives of the church. But then you have other Christians who are so strong on civility, they have, you have no idea what they believe in. So you need convicted civility, right? And so as an elder, I try to be clear about our church's teaching after I've logged hours of listening, so I've honored the journey someone's been on. And I want to understand what's so compelling about being a part of our faith community. And this can be heartbreaking because here's what our church does believe. And that's, it's, um, those are hard conversations to have. And we've had people say it's not a good fit. We've had people say, okay, I disagree with you at that macro level of your doctrine, but I like the micro level relationships I have in our church and I'm willing to stay despite those disagreements. Now they'll have limitations on things that they can do in, in our local church, but they're welcome, right? Um, so churches are kind of navigating it in those ways. Authentic relationships that are personal and meaningful, um, but clarity about what you believe, because I don't think it's good to hide that from people. There's no bait and switch here, but honoring their journey before you start telling them, you know, those other pieces. So let me, let me stop there. We're at our time, and uh, we'll be back. Uh, if, well, I'll be back. I'm hoping some of you will be back, too. This, this 